0: The hearing on on Interior and the subcommittee will come to order and welcome Secretary Halland and welcome to Denise Flanagan, so good to have you with us, and to our colleagues and to our constituents. Today's hearing will review the Department of Interior's fiscal year 2023 budget request. And before I get started, I just wanted to highlight that during this session of Congress, the subcommittee, after a conversation that um, we have had uh, with uh, Senator, that I've had with Senator Murkowski, we have forgone the plastic water bottles that you see at hearings all across um, uh, Capitol Hill. And I mention that simply because plastic is becoming an issue that the department is, is dealing with, that America is dealing with, that the world is dealing with, because it is impacting our lands, our oceans, our wildlife, even our own uh, bodies. and. Uh, Because, Secretary Helen, under your leadership, the Interior Department is taking steps to address the issue of plastic pollution. And last month, you signed a secretarial order to phase out single-use plastics on public lands. And uh, really want to thank you for that effort. Lays out a uh, 10-year plan. Uh, I encourage you to to consider whether there's a way for it to be a, a, a plan that takes less than a decade given the significance of plastics on public lands. But the fact is that you've taken very significant action and I applaud that. Turning to the American landscape, I wanna start with with wildfires, wildfires that are absolutely devastating to many of our, our Western states. Compared to this time last year, four times as many acres have burned in this year, 2022. And it's not just the, uh, the, f- the fires and their impact on the, the forest, but it's also the enormous risk to our communities and to our, our citizens, the massive amount of uh, smoke and air pollution that they produce. I will never forget the 2020 Labor Day fires in Oregon, where I traveled some 600 miles uh, back and forth across the state, never getting out of the smoke, and seeing six communities absolutely burned to the ground, and then meeting... With what were became thousands of uh, citizens that had lost their homes, lost everything, lost everything, and communities that were just absolutely uh, uh, obliterated, and and uh, it's so challenging to restore the lives, restore the communities. So, fire is a, a big deal for America. It's a big deal for the Department of Interior, and uh, I'm very pleased that that. Uh, as chair of this subcommittee, I was able to work with colleagues on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that provided $20 billion of appropriated funds to the Department of Interior programs for programs within this subcommittee's jurisdiction and specifically $2.5 billion over 10 years to invest in wildfire risk reduction and ecosystem restoration, including funds for fuel breaks, for hazardous fuels projects, reduced amount of fuels in the forest, uh, prescribed fires, and burned area restoration. Another uh, uh, effort that we have undertaken is to um, provide funding for the training of National Guard members to be able to assist and become fire crews when we are in desperate need of additional fire crew members. Uh, This has uh, been an important undertaking. Those crews have been very valuable, and it's something that uh, we're working to continue. At this point, more than 1,000 personnel have been trained, and I know that as we continue to fund this program, train many more. I was struck uh, a couple weeks ago uh, Uh, in conversations, meetings about uh, this fire season that there is great difficulty in uh, filling out the crews uh, that are needed Uh, and um, that effort to have the National Guard members provide additional support makes a lot of sense. The uh, final fiscal year 22 interior bill funded five forest collaboratives across Oregon increase the ability to do these landscape uh, restoration projects that provide uh, uh, trees to the mill, and uh, jobs in the forest, and healthier forests, and forests that are more fire resilient. And, for the first time, we created a program to specifically address public health impacts of wildfire smoke. It's critical that the Department use all its resources and tools at its disposal, including tribal co-management, interagency agreements, like the Western Oregon Operating Plan, and forest and rangeland collaboratives to get this funding on the ground and put it to work protecting our communities. While I'm, I'm pleased with these accomplishments, I recognize that the fiscal year 22 budget deal did not address all the urgent challenges that your department faces. Urgent challenges in climate chaos, and loss of biodiversity, significant staffing shortages to mention a few. And I'm disappointed that the uh, the final deal continued to include some legacy policy writers that harm the environment, like the sage grouse rider that prevents U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from employing the best possible science in terms of uh, the survival of that species. But the final fiscal year 22 bill included a lot to be proud of in addition to wildfire risk reduction. We increased funding for national monuments planning. We secured 10 million to Constructive Voting Rights Center, the Selma Interpretive Center to honor the legacy of civil rights leaders including the late representative John Lewis. We funded $7 million for the Indian boarding school initiative that I will be asking more about and and really applauding uh, today and we stopped the, the bleeding by halting the backslide of staffing levels for programs that promote clean water, protect our public lands, and conduct critical environmental research. And I want to thank you, Secretary Helen, for the Department's efforts to push completion of a resource management plan for the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument, a, a plan that is really uh, needed for the expanded monument. I know you're, you're making very significant process on that and I'm just encouraging you uh, to keep that process uh, going, going forward with all due momentum. It'll be a day to celebrate when we have that final resource management uh, plan. And I want to thank you and the department for the wonderful success of the Monarch Summit that we held together uh, last month. I've got my Monarch pin on, and I'll be getting you one uh, as well. And um, bringing experts together for two days, uh, to uh, uh, really address this, this enormous collapse of the monarch population and all its implications uh, was really uh, generated so much uh, uh, energy uh, that you could just sense the excitement in the room that that, uh, that effort uh, was highlighting some very significant issues that need to be highlighted. We're going to have a set of proposals that come out of that, but I just wanted to put up this chart for the decline of the Western monarch. We see that in the year 2020, we had less than 2,000 monarchs. That's less than five thousandths of a percent of the numbers that we had back in the 1990s. This, this is catastrophic. We've had a, a slight rebound, a very good year last year, a slight rebound uh, to where, but we're still less than 1% of the Western monarchs. And I've been to uh, Pismo Beach, I've seen the overwintering uh, grounds in California, actually it's a whole several hundred sites along the coast where they they, they gather uh, to avoid freezing over the winter. Uh, We discovered some some very important things in the summit, for example, uh, that um, climate change is affecting survival because it's upsetting the timing of when the overwintering monarchs uh, leave the coast and the time that the milkweed comes out of the ground on which they lay their their eggs. Uh, And we found out that uh, the challenge with uh, the milkweed that we might acquire in our nurseries is that it's contaminated with pesticides that can actually kill monarchs, and so we have to have a pesticide-free milkweed production. There's a tremendous amount that came out of that. We have to address this, and this actually isn't just about the monarchs, it's about pollinators in general that play such an essential role in our ecosystem. So thank you so much for collaborating on that and uh, I'll look forward to maintaining the momentum on the ideas that come come out of that uh, uh, meeting. So um, uh, let me switch to a broader question of climate change. Uh, I know that uh, President Biden has publicly advocated for a paradigm shift on how we manage our public lands and waters for energy development, but in practice what we've been seeing is in all the above approach, an approach that will not boldly address our climate challenge. And that involves both addressing the demand and the supply of fossil fuels. And we are definitely at a point where business as usual uh, doesn't, doesn't work. You know, we've just talked about the, the fires, but there's so much more going on in my home state, the, the loss of the snowpack, the acidification of the oceans. Uh, just uh, everywhere we look, we're being impacted by these changes in a, a very, very harmful way. It's affecting our fishing. It's affecting our farming. Uh, it's, uh, it's affecting our forests. And uh, so I want to encourage the Department to do all in its power to boldly address uh, climate Uh, And so just to express some of my concerns, uh, the uh, department's long-awaited analysis of federal oil and gas leasing did not incorporate or address climate change. The department has defended environmental impact statements that do not contemplate climate change, statements that have been rejected by the courts subsequently as inadequate. The administration put forward the largest lease of drilling rights in the Gulf of Mexico in U.S. history, a sale that was also halted by a court challenge challenging the environmental impact statement. The Department may have been legally required to offer a sale, but it wasn't legally required to offer a massive sale. And I know you and I have spoken about other aspects of where I think the Department can really, really work uh, to try to boldly address uh, climate as we look at energy resources. And earlier this month, the department released a five-year plan for offshore drilling. It highlights a range of leasing options, including, including a no-leasing option. There is nothing in the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act that requires offering these leases. And I urge you to choose the no-lease option in your final plan. Uh, in Oregon, we are terrified of the impact on our ocean resources, our salmon, our crabbing, our, our, our shrimp just a whole range of critical ocean resources, and we're very, very concerned about the potential impacts of a disaster on our shoreline, our coastal uh, communities. Uh, Just uh, oil washing up on the shores would be absolutely uh, devastating. And we simply must adopt more of a keep-it-in-the-ground perspective, since we are at this tipping point of the devastating impacts of climate change on our states. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in its 2021 report used the term, or it issued it, it called it a Code Red for Humanity, massing evidence of the catastrophic changes that are, are, we're experiencing. In American lingo, we would call this a five alarm fire. Record-setting global temperatures, year after year, catastrophic wildfires, increasing frequency and severity of storms, causing devastating impacts on lands and people, Large-scale flooding that heavily damaged uh, Yellowstone National Park is an an example, costs millions to repair. Oceans 30% more acidic, impacting our sea life, the fishing industry, and our fishing communities. Droughts devastating the livelihoods of our farmers and our ranchers. And we have, uh, in addition uh, to carbon dioxide, that's all talked about, uh, we have the challenge of fossil gas. Uh, Methane, we refer to it in public as natural gas. Uh, It is methane gas, it is fossil gas. And this chart shows what the eye sees when it looks at a facility, which you can't see any visible emissions. And then when you have, um, I think it's infrared photography, you see there's a massive plume of methane being emitted. Uh, And I will put into the record, if there's no objection, uh, a chart that shows uh, satellite data, massive number of uh, examples like this from across the country that are being observed. And as we get better satellite um, uh, data, we're getting a far better understanding of the massive leaks. The estimate right now in the Permian Basin is 10 percent of the fossil gas is leaked in the atmosphere, making it worse than coal in terms of the impact on climate. So um, thank you for uh, hearing me out on my concerns about the bold pivot we need uh, to make. Uh, The administration uh, can do uh, a lot and I encourage bold uh, action. Now we may hear something today about the high gas prices and the need for more drilling. So I just wanted to share a few comments about that It's like a heroin addict saying that the solution to heroin addiction is more heroin. Let's recognize several basic facts. The prices we're experiencing are extremely painful to Americans. They're devastating. They are primarily the result of disruption from Putin's war on Ukraine and the resulting embargo on Russian energy in combination with the rising demand as the economy rebounds from COVID. And these prices are also the result of gouging by the oil companies which have tripled their profit margins from refining. Let's also recognize the oil companies own leases that will allow them to drill on 20 million additional acres of federal land and water that they are not using. If oil companies want to drill more, they already can. Next, that the timeline for building out new infrastructure will not have any impact on the current cost of gas because of that long timeline that it takes. And that the answer in the long term to the high cost of petroleum at the pump is an end to our addiction to that petroleum by building rapidly building a renewable energy economy. If we want to stop enriching Russia and Iran, if we want to reduce the price we suffer at the pump, then we need to end our addiction to fossil fuels. Madam Secretary, you have enormous responsibilities that are so important uh, to our lands and the future of this country. I know you are absolutely dedicated to that. Efforts we'll explore many of that through the questions today, and I really appreciate your your service. With that, let me uh, turn this over uh, to uh, uh, Senator Murkowski.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning, Madam Secretary. Welcome back to the committee. Uh, look forward to the opportunity to discuss the President's budget request this morning and a number of specific activities that the budget uh, proposes to support. Uh, I appreciate uh, my colleague and the Chairman leading off with a discussion about fire. It's, uh, it's pretty tough in Alaska right now. We're up to about 2.8 million acres burned already. We had 13 new fires just in the past 24 hours. Uh, The smoke issues, particularly in the interior, have been a real challenge this summer, but we've seen it out in other parts of of the state as well. It's dry, and uh, the good news for us right now is that the rains are coming, and and that's a positive, but uh, we need to make sure that we're not just praying for rain as the the policy here to make sure that the fire threat uh, doesn't doesn't bring about further damage. Um, <clears throat> obviously, some some differing views on the committee here in terms of our energy resources and and how we utilize them to the benefit uh, of our country. Uh, certainly, to the benefit of places like Alaska, which is a of course a producing state. So, I'd like to talk uh, about a few of the uh, the the issues. Um, And I'll be a little parochial here just to start off, but on Friday, the Bureau of Land Management released a draft uh, supplemental EIS for the Willow Project within the NPRA, and uh, I think you saw the press release on that. I welcomed that step. Uh, I can't stress enough the need for the department to to move forward with final approval for the Willow Project. Uh, It is my... Very sincere hope that the department will will soon be able to issue permits so work can begin on this project during the, the upcoming winter season, 22-23. Uh, we have had the conversation, uh, Madam Secretary, I've had the conversation with the president, I've had the conversation with just about everybody in the administration that will listen to me on Willow, uh, because I, I firmly believe that we need to have a realistic plan for the future of our energy supply, and I think that Alaska definitely fits within that plan. Um, the chairman mentioned the, the near record high gas prices that, that families are, are, are seeing. Um, it's bad all over the country, but if you're in a community like Yakutat, I, I follow the, the, the weekly gas prices in um, various communities around the state. Yakutat is paying about $7.25. Uh, a gallon for fuel, um, it's just tough. And so they're asking me, what, what are the tools that are available? What can the administration be doing? What can Congress be doing to, to, help, to help dampen uh, these price increases that we're seeing? And, and for me, it comes down to, to the basics of, of economic supply and, and demand. And I am one who believes very strongly that that the administration and, and here in this country we need to use those tools at our disposal to increase domestic production to improve our energy security, particularly as we're seeing the the global disruptions and and the unrest. And I've I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again: Alaska stands ready, willing, and certainly able to be a big part of that solution. All while we insist on on meeting the highest environmental standards in the world. The chairman has mentioned the five-year plan for the offshore oil and gas uh, that the department recently proposed. And again, given what we're seeing here uh, at home uh, over in Europe, I truly, truly believe that our national security interests require that we increase our domestic supply of these resources, including from from our offshore areas. Um, you know, I've heard I've heard the reference before that that oil is, is an addiction. Um, I recognize that we have a reliance on it, um, but when I think of, of an addiction like a heroin addiction, I think about it as 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 something that um, there is no there is no upside. To, to heroin addiction. Um, our, our reality as a country is that we have a resource that not only we need right now, but the world needs right now. Um, and it is not just to fuel our vehicles. I think we're, we're, we're moving to, to different transportation fuels, but that is a transition. But everything, everything that we, we use practically has some aspect of petroleum in it and and so until we can figure out what that substitute is this petroleum base that really powers and moves and and allows us to function as a modern society is is something is something that is in demand and Again, we can choose to to look to others to meet that demand and make ourselves more vulnerable, uh, more reliant on others, um, and particularly others that don't even like us or whose environmental track record is awful or whose human rights track record is awful. So I I have said, as we transition from a a, a fossil-based society a transition requires that uh, there be a, a, a path forward that is sensible for your economy and, and sensible uh, really technologically. And so we got a lot of work to do there. I feel strongly when it comes to the five-year plan, that the administration has, has to move move and move quickly to finalize a plan that keeps at least the current acreage available for offshore leasing, including in in my state, but your proposed plan included the option of holding no lease sale at all, which I I think that that's unacceptable. Um, For the Department to even consider a five-year plan that would include no lease sales, I I just don't think makes sense, and I, I think it's actually harmful to our economy and our national security. The national interest demands the administration avoid a costly gap in leasing and that it conducts offshore sales. So I want to see annual sales in Cook Inlet, not one sale every five years. Failure to have meaningful oil and gas programs, including in the 1002 area, where the administration is illegally disregarding the law, will reduce domestic investment at the worst possible time for our country and for our global allies. I think the president needs to focus on places like Alaska, not Saudi Arabia, not Venezuela, not Iran, and then, and then work with us to achieve just that. So I've, I've said before, Madam Secretary, Alaska is, is willing uh, and able and ready to increase our nation's and our allies' energy security. All we really need is permission from the federal government uh, to get moving, get those permits, and, and we are there. Another area where I'm hoping to see progress with the administration is in its commitment to mineral development. I do appreciate the uh, the President's invocation of the Defense Production Act and the Department's budget request to support uh, critical mineral efforts. I think, again, um, making sure that we are focusing on, on supply, where we have the supply, and we certainly have that in this country, matters. Domestic supply matters to our energy security. It also matters to our mineral security. Um, And like oil and gas, one of the keys here to meeting this challenge is for the department to actually make mine permit determinations in a timely manner. We've heard not only in this committee, but we've certainly heard in the energy committee that if we want to be competitive globally, um, if we want to be a producer and not just an importer, we cannot afford for it to take 10 years to permit a mine on public land. So I want to work with the department to ensure that our, our vast potential is realized in Alaska, whether it's gold or silver or copper, all of our critical minerals. But it seems that for every step forward we take on policy, we're taking two steps backwards on projects. Um, perfect example of that is the Ambler Access Road, just kind of stunning, that the administration has openly conflicted its commitment to supply chain security and deliberately set back one of its best options to improve it, Ambler has a guaranteed right away under a 1980 law under Anilka um, that the federal government has to has to abide by. I do understand, of course, the need for tribal consultation. I strongly support it, but that can occur even as access project continues. So telling Ambler to stop all work and lose a field season I think is is a ridiculous approach that undermines any credibility the administration may be seeking on mineral security. We What we need here is a strategic focus to reduce our dependence on China and Russia, other adversarial uh, nations, but not, not an incoherent um, approach on minerals. So, uh, Madam Secretary, to an area that I think we have much more agreement on, and that's working together to provide resources to our tribal communities. Uh, Whether we're talking about public safety and and justice, natural resources, construction programs, working uh, with our tribes uh, throughout Alaska and in Indian Country, I think that this has been one of those areas where we do have bipartisan support. We do have bicameral um, uh, priority. We know that the appropriations process is never quick, it's never easy. But as we work through the process, I do think it's important for us to continue this bipartisan approach to these issues to ensure high-priority program areas like PL280 programs are funded. And then I want to to wrap my remarks by thanking you for coming to Alaska, to hear from so many Alaskans uh, the trip that you took to to not only – uh, visit with people who came to Anchorage to meet with you, uh, the the meetings that you had, but also uh, your travels to see firsthand some of the unique challenges and opportunities. I think this is particularly illustrated by our visit to King Cove um, and your opportunity to hear from residents about the critical need for a life-saving road. So I do appreciate that. And um, uh, value the time that you gave us for that. So as you consider this and other Alaska-specific issues, I hope you will build upon the experience that you had on the ground and consider the views of those most directly impacted by departmental decisions. I know that um, there are many areas where where you and I just, we don't see eye to eye on, on some of these matters related to Alaska, but I appreciate your willingness to work with me on areas that we do have agreement. Um, and I am ever hopeful that as you're, you're continuing to hear from Alaskans, you will come to understand our state and the potential that it has um, really as, a, as an economic um, center and, and what we can provide and contribute for energy and mineral security, while at the same time an equal priority is to, to protect uh, and care for our lands and our people. Uh, we need a lot from the Department, more than we're getting right now, but thank you. Thank you for being here, um, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate a little indulgence with the uh, with the length of time and opening, but much to be said this morning. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you very much uh, to our ranking uh, member, uh, Senator Murkowski. And uh, Madam Secretary, uh, the responsibilities that that uh, your department has uh, uh, create many uh, uh, challenging decision points. Uh, and the Senate at its best is a chance for senators to articulate their visions that come from their personal experience in their home states. You've heard a little bit of the diversity of opinion this morning, and I think that's a very a healthy thing for uh, a, a hearing to be able to express uh, those opinions and uh, thoughts. and um, And the administration now gets to wrestle with them. With that, we're looking forward to your opening statement. Thank you.